Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Yeah, even the way that, you know, physiques are talked about in the sports. What's rewarded, not even like verbally, but with attention. Yeah. So much of a person's perceived value is derived from the treatment that they get online and what they get attention for. The data is really clear on the implications of anything that resembles a diet and kids and children and teenagers. And teenagers are still children. And it's not good. Hey everyone, Meredith here, and you're listening to the Afternoon Snack Podcast. On today's episode, we are going to tell you all the ways that we were wrong about things. Well, not exactly wrong, but at least a few things that we've changed our minds on as people, as coaches, and as business owners. If you've been clients of ours for a long time, you're probably going to recognize some of these things as like, oh, yep, I remember when they used to say this or support this. We hope that you can forgive us for that. But anyways, it's important to share these things, our updated stances. And of course, it's okay to change your mind sometimes, especially when new and better information presents itself. So we hope that you like this episode and we'll get right to it. Hey, Meredith. You know, one of these days, here's what I want from you. I want for you to sleep in like past 630. I thought I did today. I like I worked hard to stay in bed until seven today. It was you. barely it like you specifically over requested that last night. I did. Well, you were like I want to sleep in and I was like, go ahead. And you were like, but I but I want to sleep in with you. Yeah. Like sometimes it's nice to sleep in with you. And the reason is, and I'm sure there are some people out here who will find this very relatable, is that when one person habitually gets up earlier than the other, and then I guess like it's not even just getting up. It's getting up and like going right to work on your computer. I wake up every single day in like a panic. Because you're behind. Because I feel behind. Which like, you are. It's not that you <laughs> feel like you're behind. You are behind. When I sleep in, I'm not sleeping in until like nine. Like my sleep in's like 7.30. But you're already awake and having probably completed like 90 minutes of work. Yeah, that's accurate. I've been like toying with the idea of getting up at like 4.30 every morning. <laughs> I, like, I did. I pushed it to 4.45 mm. the other morning and it caught up to me in the afternoon. Yeah, it was like 2 p.m. and you were in a coma on yeah. the couch. Yeah, I had to take a nap. <laughs> When's the last time you had a morning where you didn't do any work, where you just like had coffee and enjoyed TV or reading something that wasn't related to work probably that year that i didn't work 2017 <laughs> yeah when we met but since tactic and like when i worked in the office and like even when i went to law school i would get up and like do a bit we i used to get up at five in law school mm -hmm. and turn the news on and have coffee and then go for my run like 30 minutes later yeah so i didn't really work a ton like immediately then because i would immediately go for a run and then go to school so i would say like I don't know, seven years ago? Okay, seven years. Or the day after our wedding. But you were very hungover on yeah, that day. Yeah, I didn't work on that day. That was that was out of necessity, though. Yeah. Because you couldn't. Yeah, I was literally felt like I was dying. Yeah. I literally felt like I was dying. That's what it must feel like to almost die. To be very close. Yeah. Yeah. We drove past like a, a restaurant yesterday in Fernie that's only open for like 
brunch and lunch. And I think I said like, oh, we should go there one day. And then I thought to myself, well, the fact that it's a brunch place pretty much guarantees that we will never go there. Yeah. Brunch doesn't really work for my schedule. No. It's too leisurely. Too leisurely. I wonder what it'll be like to go on a vacation one day. We did go on to the farmer's market last weekend and strolled around the farmer's market. No, we didn't stroll, Alex. Like we power walked. I know, because I was like, this sucks. Let's go home and you like, may get as to well work. Have, like set a stopwatch. I've been like, hey, you have three and a half minutes to go from one end to the other and back. I was like, get your peaches and we're getting out of here. <laughs> yeah, that's how it felt. There's no browsing. There's no like, I want to go look at this vendor or I want to go look at this tent. And it's the same when we go shopping. It's like, if you don't know exactly what you're shopping for, then you don't get to shop. That's yeah. what it's like with you. Yeah. Pretty much like being in a relationship with you is kind of anxiety inducing. No offense. But also you're a very productive person with me. Yeah. I just have forgotten how to relax, I guess. So I guess just go back to therapy for that one. Yeah. We'll go on a vacation one day. <laughs> one day. All right. So point of this podcast is to basically say we were wrong about some stuff and we're going to tell you what This is changed. hard. Meredith is one of those people who rarely, rarely, rarely admits that she's wrong. Well, no, this isn't like a, hey, I was wrong. See, and she's doing it right now. <laughs> this isn't, I made a mistake. I was wrong. This is like better information has emerged and therefore I've changed my opinion okay. on some things. Got it. <laughs> but I was trying to be funny and like intro it in a way that was engaging and people were going to be like, ooh, they were wrong. But really it's just like, the whole premise of science is that you base your beliefs and your actions on where the evidence lies. And then as more evidence comes out through research, you change your stance on things. Like to be rigid in your beliefs is the antithesis of being scientific. If you find someone who's unwilling to look at other evidence, they're not scientific. They're dogmatic. That was smart. You sounded very smart. Thanks. You're smart today. You don't have a great sense of humor because maybe you're in a bad mood because you got up early. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, like you agreed to sleep in with me this morning and I got up earlier than I did yesterday because you slept in. Yeah. And I was like, oh, Meredith, I I slept till seven. It's seven on a Sunday. And I wanted to wake you up so that you knew that I was still there. (laughs) Yeah. Fair. Okay. So we're going to talk about a handful of things that we've changed our opinion on as people and as a company since we run a coaching company specifically oriented at nutrition coaching. So yeah, I guess we'll get right to it. The first thing, and I remember making a post about collagen back around the 2018-2019 period. And that was one of my first experiences is to like, it's really weird what people get triggered by. And I think part of that comes from people are sold certain ideas by companies. And then when you kind of come out and say like, oh, it may not be as good as like they're telling you that it is like people really identify with the decisions that they make, even when the decisions aren't totally founded in like good evidence. And instead of like taking a look at what evidence is being presented, people just get really ticked off. It almost exposes them to like having a full understanding And it's like, instead of being like, oh, shoot, like maybe I didn't look enough, like far enough into this, Mm. they like defend it because that's better. That's easier than admitting that they were doing something unproductive. Yeah, I think that's it. And people, they connect all these dots where you just point out like, hey, this decision that you've made may not be the best one. But, you know, they connect the dots to like, you think I'm dumb for making this decision. We're like, no, I don't definitely don't think that. 
I just think that there's more information that obviously the sellers of certain supplements are not going to like tell you, they're not going to give you the whole picture and be honest about what the landscape of scientific evidence is because that might hinder their ability to sell their product. It's just marketing. Yeah. Like, so you're not dumb. You just believe what you hear. Yeah. And sometimes it's very convincing. Like sometimes yeah. people will send me articles like trying to bolster their stance on something. And it's like on the blog of the supplement company. And it's like, well, number one, this is a blog post written by people who make a supplement. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's going to paint the evidence in like a positive light. Yeah. There's also, you know, with something like supplements, it's easy to just see something, whether it's on social media or it's posted by your favorite like nutrition company or it's, yeah, it's on the website that you bought something from or somebody recommended something. It's easy to just be like to look at something and be like, okay, we all are very busy. Yeah. We don't like we don't have a ton of time to be looking into every single thing that we do. Right. So, I mean, you can't blame someone for not doing their own research. <laughs> yeah, and like fundamentally, most supplements out there, well, not most, but a large handful of them are not going to cause any harm if you take them. And I would say collagen has historically been that supplement. Like, you can take it. It may not be a magic pill or a silver bullet, but it's not going to do you any harm. But yeah, I think that when people buy anything, they're buying a promise or a feeling that they aren't getting. And I think with health, especially in the US and Canada, so much of it has been outsourced to the person. Like it's like DIY healthcare because a lot of what people feel and experience is not validated by medical professionals or it takes so long to get in to see someone and then, you know, you get 15 minutes and they don't even seem to give a shit. So you're kind of left to your own devices with doing research on your own health. And so a it's lot not, of people- Within health, nutrition specific. Yes. Like, I mean, as an example, like I had pretty bad gut health for a while and I went to many doctors and not one of them asked about my nutrition. Mm -hmm. So it's like you are kind of left to your own devices in terms of like, if you say to your doctor, like, well, what should I eat? Like, they don't know. Yeah. That's not their job. Yeah. You see that with the rise of like functional medicine doctors and naturopaths and osteopaths. And like, there's probably a, a place for those types of practitioners in the like medical landscape, but they're becoming more popular because people just want answers. They just want help and they're not getting it. So anyways, that's like kind of a long-winded way to say like that's why a lot of people get sucked into supplement companies because supplement companies aren't dumb. Like they know what's going on. And so they market themselves to people who are looking for answers. And if you take what supplement companies say at face value, it's going to sound like they have all the answers when maybe they don't. So when we had first talked about collagen, we talked about it as a, a supplement that's not particularly effective for the promises that are made, which are predominantly hair, skin, and nail health and joint health. There's two types of collagen. There's type one collagen, which is the type that is found mostly like predominantly hair, skin, nails, and then type two, which is in more like implicated in joint health. I'm not ready to put my flag in the ground and say like collagen is an effective supplement, but it, definitely I'm upgrading it from a no, not worth the money to a maybe in certain situations based on some research that has come out. There's not a ton of research that indicates that type one does much of anything like hair, skin and nails. Like it's, it's probably not going to do much for you in that area. But there's interesting data on type two, specifically in rheumatoid arthritis patients. So an autoimmune version of arthritis where they supplemented type two collagen from chickens and saw some positive correlations in symptom management. 
So it's a maybe. Like, does it work as well in completely healthy individuals? I don't think that data really exists yet. But the fact that it works in like a sick population is kind of positive. And then like gelatin is sort of synonymous with collagen. Like they both contain glycine, which is the main amino acid in collagen. Like a gelatin supplement with vitamin C may improve collagen synthesis in your body. So there's some data that's like maybe... It's one of those, like, we need more data to say one way or the other, which most research papers end that way. But those are two kind of positive indications that collagen might be maybe okay, maybe doing something. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, and we'll probably touch on this later in the episode when we talk about macros, collagen kind of gets poo-pooed for not being a complete protein. Mm -hmm. So people will use it to add to their protein intake, increased protein intake. So like a lot of people put collagen in their coffee. Yeah. And so I would see that in logs and it's kind of like, I think when we first came out with our stance on collagen that it was fairly useless. Yeah. I was telling people like, hey, don't, don't take it. Like it's not worth the money. But some people like enjoy it. It does contribute to your protein. It's not a complete protein, but at the same time, it's like 10 to 15 grams for a lot of people. Like who cares? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's just getting so nitty. There's like saving money and taking something that isn't helpful. But if you enjoy it and you want to take it and it contributes some to your protein, then go for it. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's, it's a check in the box for doing something that is positive or you feel is positive for your health. Yeah. Like those types of habits can really compound. So, you know, is it a good protein? No. And that's supported in research too. Even when you compare whey protein, which is the most complete proteins out there and one of the most well-studied to a leucine matched collagen protein. So leucine is the amino acid that is most important for muscle protein synthesis. So the argument has always been with collagen is It's basically devoid of leucine in its natural form, but that's why it doesn't support muscle protein synthesis, but they've matched leucine content. So they've added leucine into collagen supplements and it whey protein still outperforms it. So there's, yeah, it just supports the hypothesis, which we'll talk again about later that you need all of the essential amino acids to efficiently stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And so collagen, it shouldn't be where you get most of your protein from. But most people aren't getting most of their protein from collagen. No. And honestly, if you're an omnivore and you eat meat and you eat plants, if you just eat some meat off the bone, you're going to get plenty of collagen in your diet. Collagen is actually one of the most common forms of protein if you're eating meat, especially off the bone. So you don't need to supplement. You can eat different forms of meat. And gummy bears. And gummy bears. Yeah. You know, people always ask about certain supplements. Are there vegan alternatives to it? Collagen is like fundamentally an animal product. There are some, you know, quote unquote vegan alternatives, but so far the vegan synthetic collagen-like supplements have not been shown to be effective in any population of people. So it's one of those, you're, you know, as a a vegan, you're probably just going to be lacking a little in in glycine and in actual collagen intake. But what are you going to do, right? Yeah. So gummy bears, I wasn't joking. No. Yeah. Gummy bears have glycine in them. Yeah. Yeah. The one question I had regarding collagen, I don't really know the mechanism behind this, but there wasn't there something about putting collagen in like a warm liquid? Well, just it denatures it. But so does eating it, right? Like you're, whether you put it in a warm liquid or you eat it, now it's at body temperature, 
it just completely denatures. And so all that says, right, is because the hypothesis that if you consume connective tissue, and when you say it like this, you kind of realize how silly it is. When you consume connective tissue in the form of collagen, whether it's off the bone or in a supplement form, that it would go directly to your connective tissues, and that's how it would be used. When we know that that's not really how digestion works. And it's so kind of like when I take Tylenol. I imagine the Tylenol going <laughs> to the injured area. It's just like, <laughs> I know exactly where to go. <laughs> yeah. Where like, you know, actually like Tylenol works in the brain. Mm -hmm, I do know. Yeah. And so collagen doesn't work in the brain. But what it happens is when you eat it, just like with any other protein, it's broken down into its constituent parts so into amino acids, and then it passes through the intestine walls into the bloodstream. And so then your serum levels of certain amino acids go up, and then certain amino acids are associated with certain functions in the body. For example, leucine is associated with muscle protein synthesis. Tryptophan is associated with serotonin production. Tyrosine is associated with dopamine and norepinephrine production. So while there may be some benefit in higher levels of glycine from like a collagen synthesis standpoint in the body, you know, speculating that consuming collagen is going to have a direct impact on collagen production. That's a bit of a stretch because that's just not how the, the body works. It's going to use the amino acids in the way that it most needs them, which predominantly is in muscle protein and in protein balance in the body. Right. So would you say that this episode okay. is like a fourth year biology <laughs> class or like third like uh, bio 323 or bio 401 i think we'll give this one a four okay yeah it's pretty high yeah yeah you're doing great though Thanks. so far you're passing <laughs> ivy's like i'm out of here i gotta go <laughs> i need to intro to bio first yeah she's a zoology <laughs> major so that's kind of that's collagen right it gets a maybe from us now but still not the best source of protein and doesn't outperform complete proteins in muscle protein synthesis. Yeah. Yeah. On to the next one, shall we? Please. BCAAs. Oh, man. This one hurts. Yeah. I not only would tell people to take BCAAs, like it would be in every plan that I sent out as like a recommendation for pre-workout. Yeah. Take BCAAs for multiple reasons. And then not only would I recommend them, I was also consuming them. You were a user. I was a user, but like not just like one dose a day. It was the way that I got fluid into my body. I don't think I ever drank plain water. It always had BCAs. <laughs> I would get this lemon lime stuff. Yeah. And then I got really good at like adding some bubbly water. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like this really refreshing like lemon lime with a bit of a bubbly twist. Ooh. I still miss BCAs. Yeah. But I don't take them anymore and I don't recommend them. Well, that's good because that is our revised stance yeah. on them. Our revised stance is they aren't what we once thought that they were. Basically, the way that you would describe it, and you'll get into the science, but it's like it's applying sunscreen onto the roof of a house. Yeah. Or like pouring water on your head when you're in a swimming pool. Yeah. It just doesn't do much. No. In fact, it can have negative impacts. Right. On mood and sleep. Yeah. Um, because it can have an impact on the brain. Yeah, exactly. So BCAA stands for branched chain amino, amino acids. acids. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I want the listeners to yeah. think I know something. You do. Which is why you're going to name the three amino acids. Leucine, 
isoleucine, and valine. Nice. Thank you. Nice work. Yeah, I don't think many people would get that. The whole idea behind BCAAs is that supplementation, so leucine, like we've already talked about with collagen, is involved in muscle protein synthesis. So BCAAs are often promoted as an ergogenic aid for athletic performance. And the two promises made by BCAA supplementation is number one, it increases muscle protein synthesis, so makes building muscle easier. And then number two, it combats fatigue during exercise. And one of those is valid and one of those is not. I mean, I did make it to the games when I was taking BCAAs. Me too. I actually found out, I used to take this brand, it was called Modern BCAAs and it was USP Labs. I think they got shut down for like contaminated, like (laughs) literally. So Really? Yeah, that was- I do remember trying to find certain BCAAs while we were dating. Yeah, it was that one. Like, no, you need to get this brand. It was like fruit punch flavor or something. It tasted so good. Yeah. Yeah. And also worked a little too well, maybe. (laughs) Not really, but they did. I mean, you were drug tested before the games and you came back clean. So I've been drug tested twice. You must have had a clean batch. Yeah, it was all good. I had nothing dirty in that one that I tested for. So the first claim, the muscle protein synthesis, that it increases your ability to gain lean muscle mass, that's actually not been supported. There's no evidence that indicates it does that to a significant degree and certainly not when you compare it to a protein-matched diet. So most of the research that looks a little positive with BCAAs, they're comparing it to diets where a person is not consuming enough protein. But as soon as a person consumes enough protein and they're lifting weights, there's no positive effect observed with BCA supplementation. So that is, yeah, pretty thoroughly debunked at this point. The second claim, the fatigue claims, and if you talk to people who take BCAAs, they'll probably tell you that they noticed this one, and, and I think I've definitely noticed it, is that it can reduce fatigue. And so essentially what it does is... The mechanism for this one, BCAAs, so the three amino acids, use the same transport carrier in the blood-brain barrier as tryptophan. And tryptophan is the precursor to serotonin and melatonin. So when serotonin levels decrease, which is what's typically produced during the daytime, when serotonin levels decrease because you're influencing tryptophan absorption in the brain, you're not going to feel as fatigued during training. Like you're just going to feel a little more alert, a little more peppy. But, and this is a big but, BCAAs also appear to diminish the uptake of other large neutral amino acids, most importantly, tyrosine. So it's going to block tyrosine absorption in the brain. And tyrosine is really important because it's a precursor to dopamine and norepinephrine. And when you limit dopamine and norepinephrine synthesis in the brain, BCA supplementation may actually cause central fatigue over time and then also impact like mood and overall well-being. Explains why I was so grumpy all the time. (laughs) What it doesn't explain is why I'm still grumpy all the time. (laughs) Big question mark on that one. Yeah. So long-term BCA supplementation is correlated to decreased mood, anxiety, some depression, <laughs> probably because you're literally impacting dopamine levels. Yeah. And like dopamine is kind of your feel good molecule in the brain. And then so catecholamines, which is what norepinephrine and dopamine are, are obviously. Im- obviously. So those are important for exercise and metabolism, specifically like how your, your body accesses glucose and does a lot of other really important things. So it's like one of those things you don't really want to mess with that, especially if you're trying to perform 
consistently in workouts. So it's kind of one of those like, mm, maybe let's not do that. For plant-based eaters, like this is always like, well, what about plant-based? Because they're not getting in the same spectrum of amino acids. Maybe. I mean, that one gets a, a maybe for plant-based eaters, for vegans, but still like there's not a lot of good data around it. You're running the same risks with like kind of over supplementing specific types of amino acids. And even though like plant-based proteins are not the most well-rounded, if you understand plant-based eating and the protein sources that are available and the protein powders that are available, you can just supplement with a more complete protein and sort of check all the boxes rather than just ramping up your intake of a few specific ones. I'm still not the biggest proponent of BCAAs and plant-based eaters. Yeah, I don't recommend it. Do you remember we used to be sponsored by a company and we would promote that brand? And do you remember when we did the Instagram post where they had a rainbow like candy flavor one? Yeah. And we did the post where I was singing and you were playing the ukulele. The ukulele. And we sang Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Yeah. And it was beautiful. I mean, I wouldn't use the word beautiful to I still have that on my Instagram. You have to go back a few years. Yeah. Like five years. It's pretty awful. It was very well received. It was. And we made a pretty good commission off of that. We did. (laughs) I didn't realize how bad your singing voice was. Or not even singing voice. It's your pitch. You don't have it. Anyway, it was entertaining. And that's what I always go for. Yeah. I actually didn't like that flavor very much. Me neither. Yeah. I like the grape one they had. But that's... R.I.P. BCAs. R.I.P. You were tasty, though. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. On to the next, shall we? This one we've alluded to in several episodes. We're going to talk in more detail on this one. And that's tracking macros for teenagers. I will say we were never super hot on this. No. I think the only teenagers I ever had tracking were ones that kind of like coming in who had already been tracking, like CrossFit teenagers who were already doing it. And so it was like, okay, like, let's just make sure that you're performing and like tinker with things. Yeah. But then it became very clear that it like wasn't doing a good thing mentally. Yeah. And it hadn't been. So the precedent had kind of been set. By the company that we used to work for, who happens to work like with a lot of teenage athletes. And we were working with a lot of CrossFitters at the time. And I think it does come from CrossFit. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not like we were working with like a bunch of like swimmers or basketball players that were tracking macros. Like, you just don't really see that in other sports. No. Whereas like in CrossFit, a lot of teenagers were tracking macros. Why do you think that is? I think part of it was when we started nutrition coaching, like the teenage division was like becoming a thing. And some of the teenagers like Haley Adams were coming up into the ranks of the general like open division. Yeah. There was a lot more notoriety around specifically her and a couple of others. And I think people were just looking at what she was doing. And that was also when day of eating things were really hot. And generally nutrition coaching was becoming more of a thing. So it's just like a combination of all these factors. And then it led a lot of like, you know, 15 to 19 or 20 year olds to start tracking macros because of course they want to be like Haley Adams Yeah, and it helps performance. Like Haley said many times, and this is nothing against Haley, but it's like, this helps me make sure that I eat enough to perform, which is perfect logic. That's the line. Yeah. But what is it doing to your mental health Yeah, and your relationship with food at that age? Yeah. Because the teenage division, I think the first year was like 2016. 
And then essentially 2017 was when WAG blew up. Like you have Katrin and Brooke who are like very visibly working with that company. Brooke got very lean Mm -hmm. that year, didn't perform super well. You saw all these like big name athletes all of a sudden tracking their food and being very public with that. And also like, I don't know if you remember what some of the like the daily eating totals were being promoted as at that time, but they were like astonishingly low. But anyways, so you see a lot of these big name athletes jumping on that specifically with WAG. And so like, what are the teenagers going to do? They want to model what the like adult athletes are doing. And so that's, I think that's what happened. And then, you know, anybody coaching nutrition in the CrossFit space at that time just ended up working with teenagers. And I think now, you know, we've kind of held this opinion for a while now about teenagers and probably shouldn't be tracking macros. But I mean, like we don't know any of the details behind Haley's year off and then, you know, what's going on with Mal. But what we do know is that the data is really clear on the implications of anything that resembles a diet and kids and children and teenagers and teenagers are still children. And it's not good. Like the rates of eating disorders And the risk as an adult goes up significantly if children diet and if teenagers diet. Weight gain later in life is more likely if kids have dieting attempts when they're young. And combine that with Instagram, it's just not good for mental health. And there are adults where it's not good for their mental health. So how is like, you know, a kid whose, you know, frontal cortex is not even fully developed, how are they supposed to have the right perspective to be able to use a tool like that appropriately. Like you can't, they can't. And as an adult, you can't assume that they can. And to say like, well, they have performance goals. Like that's not an excuse. It doesn't make it okay. In my opinion, it's like justifying the means for an end, but like there's so much damage to be done potentially. I think that in those years, I'll use just myself as an example. When I was 18 or 15 to 18, like I was kind of on my own a little bit more. Like Mm -hmm. I was still living at home, but I was traveling a lot for skiing. I was like going on trips with friends for skiing. Then university, which was like, that was another learning experience for me. All of a sudden, like someone's not cooking for me. I'm at a food hall and then I'm cooking for myself. Like there's a period of time where I think it's valuable. And again, I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, but there's a period of time where I think it's valuable to kind of just learn like, oh, if I eat everything at the meal hall, you know, you gain a little bit of weight. And like as an athlete, I think there was a little bit more emphasis on what my body was like. I was thinking about this the other day because we're here in Fernie and I actually did a summer camp when I was skiing. And I specifically remember them like body fat, like caliper measuring me here. Hmm. And I was like, wow, I was 17 years old. Yeah. And they were measuring my body fat and telling me like, okay, Alex, you're 22. Like you should be in the teen, you know, that sort of thing. And like all of those little things have an impact on you, whether you notice them right away or they come later. But I think there is a period of time where like, if you have somebody, a coach telling you what to eat and how much to eat, you never really learn through experience, which is so valuable. And you only learn by like a lot of these people like numbers. Yeah. You can't enjoy food for what it can be, which is outside of fuel. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of facets. I think there's the place for nutrition education for a teenager and especially a teenage athlete. But I think tracking macros on a daily basis and like any sort of measuring and doing it all the time is just is not a good idea. No, that's pretty clear. And I think even the pressure to eat good foods and not bad foods, you know, quote unquote, from parents and coaches and people like that tends to backfire. 
and it makes eating patterns in kids reverse. So, I mean, it's just classic psychology. You tell someone that something is off limits or that they shouldn't have it and they're going to want it. And so then, you know, not only are children and kids less likely to select good foods, but they're more likely to select bad foods. And even in times when they're not really feeling particularly hungry. So there's lots of ways to encourage good eating patterns in teenagers. And I think what's really important is to remember, even for teenage athletes, their physiological needs are a little bit different than well, a lot different than an adult. Like rates of muscle protein synthesis are higher independent of diet. Like kids just build muscle a little bit easier. They don't need the same amount of protein to do it. They do need as more carbohydrates. But I think making kids hyper-focus on macronutrients, they lose touch with how they're feeling in their bodies and they lose touch with hunger signals and with satiety signals. And if you start to impact that in the teenage years, like what happens in 20s and 30s? Like there's there's just no developed sense of eating intuition. I mean, it's funny that you you talk about like hunger signals. I think not to get too far into this because a lot of it is speculation, but with Haley and Mal and, and other teenagers in the sport of CrossFit, like I don't think it's necessarily just the way that CrossFit perpetuates the way that nutrition is viewed or like should be approached. It's the sport. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that CrossFit is so intense and these young athletes are doing so much volume in a gym without any other kids their age. It's like their hunger signals are going to be messed up already. Yeah. Because with that much intensity, that much like stimulus and growth, and then not having any extracurriculars where you're maturing, that's going to have an impact too on your psyche or on the way that you develop, whether it's related to nutrition or not. But I think that most things in life are related to nutrition. Yeah. Even the way that, you know, physiques are talked about in the sports, what's rewarded, not even like verbally, but with attention. Yeah. So much of a person's perceived value is derived from the treatment that they get online and Mm -hmm. what they get attention for, that it's difficult to not associate diet, nutrition, and exercise with feelings of self-worth and with your body or actual worth. Like if you take, you know, top female teenage athletes, you can see some of them are getting valued for the way that they look. And the performance is not that different. Yeah. And how is that affecting those girls? And I say girls because like they're children. The females, I think, are impacted a little bit more Mm -hmm. in this regard. But it's like, oh, I couldn't even imagine. I mean, when I was 19, I was having enough trouble. I know. Yeah. And I wasn't getting paid for what I was posting or what I looked like or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's so sad to even say that. Yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is, I think most people understand and know you shouldn't make negative comments on anyone's appearance, but certainly not on like a kid's appearance. But the problem is compliments, like positive comments on appearance have the same negative effect because it creates contrast. And and that's, again, like well researched at this point, like nothing that we're saying is devoid of data. Well, it's like you know, you start getting compliments. Oh, you're so jacked or like you look so good or, oh man, I wish I looked like you or you look so strong, whatever it may be. Even you look so strong for somebody who's like 17 or, you know, you're so beautiful the way that you are, whatever it is. Yeah. It seems so innocent, but what that can do for someone is it's like, oh geez, like now I have to work really hard to keep this. Because I'm only valued if I look this way. Yeah. Even as adults, that happens to us. Like imagine a, a teenage, a teenager. I won't even say girl because it applies to boys too, to men. Oh, 100%. Like, ugh, it's tough. Yeah. So I think just like there's a better approach. And if you're someone who isn't sure you have a teenager, like there are a lot of like actual 
educated experts on this topic, like psychologists and eating disorder specialists that could probably help. Yeah. I kind of in researching this topic, I found a really good article from Michigan State University that talks about some of the existing research with regards to dieting and children and teenagers and then kind of gives parents a toolbox and like a checklist of how to encourage good eating habits and a healthy relationship with food. And it is things like, you know, eating together as a family as often as possible, focusing on the feeling of togetherness. Like, don't try to sit there and educate your teenager on nutrition. They, they don't need that. You know, don't make comments on your own body. Don't say things like, mommy's got to lose her belly. Like, don't do that. Don't make negative comments about other people. Don't associate food with appearance, body shape, or size. They're really just modifications, honestly, on how you as an adult and as a parent go through your life with food and then you know, model good eating habits. You don't need to talk about it because like kids, kids model adults, like good, bad and ugly kids model adults and most specifically their parents. And so what you do matters. Yeah. And that's why as nutrition coaches, like we work with adults and when an adult says like, I'm bringing my own food or I'm, yeah, I have to bring my scale. It's like, don't, don't, do don't that. do that. Yeah. Especially if you have kids, mm -hmm. like eat with your family. And like we try to coach in a way that allows for that, like make food for your family. There are certain instances where if there's sensitivities or food restrictions where somebody might need to eat something different, but don't make a big deal about it. Right. It's little things like that that can be impactful. Like as an adult, we think that there's a, a value in education to, to tracking and, and measuring food to some degree for a period of time. But there is a point where like you have to be cautious of like, what your kids are seeing yep. and how you're talking about that. Yep. And a lot of moms have shared with us what they do for themselves and for their kids. And there's no weighing or measuring in front of them and that sort of thing. And, yeah, you know, sometimes there isn't weighing and measuring. <laughs> yeah. And th that's totally fine. And there are ways to, as an adult and as a parent, make progress with your own nutrition without having to weigh and measure in front of your kids. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that kind of goes to that all or nothing thing. And if you're not working with a coach who is capable of explaining how to do that, then a lot of times it's just like, well, my family's eating this, so I have to, you know, go off the rails when it's like, no, there's a way to, to do both. And then there's also a way to be a good role model for your kids at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the ultimate kind of goal. All right. Shall we? Mm -hmm. Plant-based protein. So the prevailing, and this is kind of an industry opinion, and there's been an industry shift with this one. The prevailing opinion used to be that you couldn't create a level playing field with plant-based proteins as far as like muscle building. Like you'd never see a plant-based athlete be able to perform and build muscle at a rate that matched meat-eating athletes. And the industry shift is that it is possible for plant-based eaters to level the playing field. The protein sources themselves are certainly not equal. This isn't saying that like rice or pea protein is as good as whey protein, but what the data kind of shows is that if a plant-based eater simply increases their protein intake by 20 to 25% above what an animal-based protein eater would eat, you get similar rates of muscle building so and muscle growth. To put this in perspective, if somebody is and I'm just going to hypothetically 150 pound female who is looking to build muscle or maintain, like focus on performance and overall health. So the back of the napkin calculations would be 150 pounds times 0.7 to 1.1. Let's just call it one to one. make it easy. So that person would, would be recommended to consume 150 grams of protein a day. If that same person is a plant-based eater, you would have them eating 180? 180, yeah. That would be hard. 
A 30 gram increase. That would be hard. It's not not doable. The good thing about plant-based proteins is that most of them come with carbs. Yeah. And so if you're just diligent and you're paying attention, you're probably able to check most of the boxes from a nutrition standpoint. Like if you're increasing your protein, you won't have to increase your carbs or you won't have to pay as much attention to them because you're going to be getting them in. And like there's a lot of benefits to plant-based eating. It's really good for performance, like specifically endurance, because it tends to be so high in carb. When you compare it to a ketogenic diet over a long period of time... Ad libitum calorie intake tends to be lower with plant-based eating. So people just naturally eat fewer calories on plant-based. And you're getting a more diverse profile of vitamins and minerals. So I think that there are a lot of good things to being plant-based. It's just, it creates challenges. It requires, and I say this as a non-plant-based eater, but someone who works with them here and there, it requires a lot of prepping and planning and cooking. If you're a plant-based eater and you're like eating on the go or not a cook Mm. person who likes to cook, it's going to be really, really difficult for you to get in the right macronutrients and the right micronutrients because then you're kind of stuck eating a lot of processed food. I think especially for vegan diets, so people who aren't consuming any dairy, they aren't consuming an iteration of a vegetarian diet that allows them to eat some animal products. Mm -hmm. Like vegan diets tend to lack sufficient amounts of key nutrients across the board, like vitamin B12, vitamin D, vitamin C, iron, zinc, iodine, all of these things. Like you don't just wing it as a vegan and have very good health. In fact, most commonly vegan eaters really struggle with performance in the gym, with their health. There's There's a a lot of deficiencies. Yeah. So I think in order to be to be effective on the vegan diet, you have to become a student of your nutrition Mm -hmm. and eventually an expert. Because that's the level of knowledge it takes to make sure that you're not deficient, to make sure that you're getting what you need in your diet and you're not leaving these big holes, which tend to be so predominant in that way of eating. And sometimes it requires like a supplementation outside of nutrition as well. Yeah. You either have to supplement or you have to be an absolute master at constructing a well-balanced diet. Yeah. And, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there with good reasons, like they have moral reasons for being a vegan, that's totally fine. I think there are a lot of people out there who do it because they think it's a healthy way to eat and it's not. There was like that Instagram influencer, the raw vegan person who died of starvation. And that's because, you know, I think for a small handful of people out there, the vegan diet masks a legitimate eating disorder. I mean, by nature, it's very restrictive. Yeah. And there are a lot of rules, which a lot of times people with eating disorders like. But the problem is when someone tells you that they're a vegan for moral reasons, like you can't argue with that. So someone with an eating disorder might select a vegan diet because they see all of the restriction. They see all of the rules. They see how it naturally drives calorie intake down. And then they get to sit back and say, like, it's moral reasons. And no one is going to they're just going to be like, okay, yeah, we can't argue with that. Your ethics, your beliefs, like if you want to do that, that's for you. When really like there may be something else going on. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's 100 percent of the time. It's not. But like certainly probably more people are going that route. It's like the new version of clean eating. All right, on to the next, eating for performance athletes, specifically following a linear intake of calories. So the more you work out, the more you eat, the more you eat, the more you work out, the more you work out, the more you eat, (laughs) infinity calories increase linearly with training, i.e. Michael Phelps eating 12,000 calories a day, which by the way, never happened. I mean, I look at some of these CrossFit athletes and I'm like, oh my goodness, like how? How are you eating that much and also able to move your body? Right. Like, how are you not constantly so full? And also pooping. 
Yeah. Like I remember eating and I still eat quite a bit, but I remember having to eat a lot of food when I was doing CrossFit because the intensity is so Mm -hmm. high and volume is high. But I was never at the level that I mean, it seems like some of these athletes are like naturally need to eat a lot because there's some like personalization to how much somebody eats. Like you'll get the odd athlete that needs to eat just 450 grams carbs a day. Whereas like there's another athlete that's around the same body weight, is doing around the same volume, maybe doesn't need to eat that much to maintain their weight, to maintain their performance, that sort of thing. But it seems like more and more now we're seeing athletes just like off the spectrum eating (laughs) like the macros. Yeah. What effect is that having on your gut also? I mean, like eating, it's a very inflammatory process, especially eating in excess. Like that alone is problematic. And then, of course, you have the thermic effect of food. So the more you eat, the more energy it takes to digest the food that you're eating. So that number gets bigger, bigger, bigger. And then, you know, look at diminishing returns on what you're eating. And like the argument from the book Burn by Herman Ponser. Herman Ponser. Like at some point, they're just diminishing returns generally. So the constrained model of energy expenditure basically says like your body just finds ways to to burn that energy off. So it's like you might be eating... I don't know, 4,000 calories a day, but you could also maybe just eat like 3,200 calories per day and the output would be the same because the more you eat, the more your body's just going to rev up certain metabolic processes and and burn those calories off. And that's what, you know, you see the opposite can be true as well. The research is most compelling on the Hadza community where they are looking at these hunter-gatherers, but they're only eating like 2,000 calories a day. And you think, well, how is that possible? They're moving around so much. But then there's just compulsory reductions in metabolic processes afterwards. And you see this too in like conditions like reds, like relative energy deficiency in sport. That's the opposite happening for athletes. Like your body just kind of adjusts in ways that can be negative. But the flip side of that it was is it will also adjust up. Yeah, those adjustments can also be negative. Yes. So anyways, I, I think that this whole eat as much as you possibly can, you know, as a competitive athlete, I don't necessarily think that that's the right approach. You know, there are certainly some situations where intake has to go up. Like you look at Tour de France athletes eating, like they're literally eating like a kilogram of carbohydrates a day. But they're also like CrossFit athletes do a lot of work, but they don't, but they're do that not much biking uh-huh. at that wattage like 10 hours a day. Exactly. Yeah. That's different. And that's what I mean. Like there are some exceptions, but there are exceptions that make sense. Mm-hmm. It's not like, you know, someone who's in the gym for six hours a day, but really only working out for like maybe three hours eating 6,000 calories a day. Like that doesn't. But if you actually think too about CrossFit volume, while the intensity is high, the actual amount of time working out isn't that much. No. It's like, you know how like when you go skiing for like a full day and you're like, how much did I actually ski? It's like you ski for four minutes, four and a half minutes. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of what CrossFit is. Mm -hmm. I work out for six hours. No, you work out for like 50 minutes. You are doing like the gym equivalent of a treadmill or a chairlift. Yeah. You're resting three minutes and then working for 10 seconds. Yes, exactly. Which like nothing against CrossFit athletes like it's hard work and like that rest period is important for performance and, yeah. and recovery and all that but it's not the same as Tour de France to say no <laughs> definitely not yeah so that's our take on eating for it be Goldilocks be Goldilocks like you don't oh eating is hard it was the hardest part about competing and I wasn't even eating that and much I think for some reason protein is this like safe macro like it's not, it doesn't have that same like, oh, carbs make you fat, fat makes you fat. I'll just eat more protein. Yeah. But it's like protein's not going to help. If you're already eating enough, mm-hmm. like eating more, it goes back to that thing where we were saying like diminishing returns. Yeah. You're not getting any benefits above like 1.2 grams. So especially if you're someone trying to gain weight, like don't just eat more protein. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, like that's eat not enough gonna, protein. It's just not productive. And then put your calories somewhere where it's a little bit easier, even fat, where you're not eating like enormous amounts of food because fat is more calorically dense. Right. Anyways, that's getting into the nitty gritty a bit, but. I like the nitty gritty. Let's talk about macro tracking. Um, I love so we've, this topic. Yeah, we've talked about macro tracking for teenage athletes, but as a, you know, as a company, we use macro tracking with adults as a tool for monitoring and learning about intake. And I think a lot of people out there probably in coaching companies and us to an extent way back used macro tracking as a means to an end and a specific end. And that end was physical results. And the problem is if you're only using the tool for the end result, physical results, and you're not using it to learn, you don't tend to retain the results that you get. You need to do it all the time in order to get results. It is an effective tool for educating about nutrition, learning about your tendencies with intake, calorie intake and where that comes, and building the habit of meal planning as well as a framework for decision making when you're eating out in the real world, which will be most foods. So it's not so much a tool that guarantees an end result as it is a tool that helps build certain skills that ultimately you can take forward without having to monitor your food intake. Like within the macro tracking tool, I think our approach has changed in terms of like on that note, it's not about tracking super meticulously or weighing and measuring things. Like, I think if you're someone who wants to lose that last five pounds, which like, I don't know, we don't really entertain that for most people, like for certain clients who are in it, but there it's, it just doesn't need to be that precise. And we don't need to be nitty about like weighing and measuring every single thing to be right down to the exact gram because like that doesn't really matter. No. But like it, it is helpful to know that when you go to some restaurant and you order a salad and you realize that salad has 120 grams of fat, that is helpful to know. Yeah. And like if you eat that and then figure out like, oh, shoot, those are the macros. I've blown my calories. It's not like, oh, I'm going to get in so much trouble for my coach. It's like it's a learning experience. Like, OK, now I know, number one, that these salads can contain more calories than maybe I need to be eating for my goals. Or number two, maybe I should be looking at the calories before I eat something yeah. just so that it can inform my decision making. It's not about like, oh, I can't have that. It's like what aligns with my goals. And sometimes like understanding quantity can be really helpful to progress someone towards their goals. It's not easy at first. No. And it requires you to change your behavior. And so sometimes we say like, oh, macro tracking isn't good for me. And I think part of it is like, oh, it's it is difficult. Yeah. It's meant to be because it's supposed to impact your behavior in a positive way. And it can be arduous at first. But most things that change behavior are difficult at first. Like, you know, we kind of get I'll catch people logging after I check their logs. Like we talked about this in the last podcast. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, you can, it, it can be helpful to look back and be like, oh yeah, I, you know, ate more fat than I should today. I'm going to eat a little less, but it's not really meant as like a retroactive it's not a assessment of yeah. how you did. It's like, what can I do tomorrow to make tomorrow a day that aligns I, with my goals? Yes. It should be more of a planning tool than a monitoring tool. Yeah. I like to think of macros and tracking and quantifying the diet as kind of like a speedometer in a car. So if you are a driver, you learn to drive a car, but you never used a speedometer. Your car just didn't have one. 
And all of a sudden there are speed limit signs posted and you keep getting tickets because you keep exceeding the speed limit. But you have no concept for what that actually means. You just drive intuitively and you're like, well, no, this is just the speed that I've always driven out on roads like this. Then you put a speedometer in the car. The purpose of the speedometer is not necessarily to prevent you from getting tickets. It's so you develop an intuition and a knowledge of what certain numeric speeds look and feel like when you're out there in the real world driving. But the tool is for education because I think most people, if you're driving a car now, you don't really have to look at your speedometer to know approximately how fast you're going. You have that developed, but it's developed because you've used a tool to develop it. But without that tool, you wouldn't have it. So that's that's kind of how quantification of the diet works, in Mm -hmm. my opinion. And like coaches, at least on our team, aren't there to give the speeding tickets. No. Which I think some people think that's what coaches do. It's oh my like, God. no, 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 no. We're like the ones teaching you how to look at the dials, what it means. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you're in the US and you're driving a car that says kilometers, like understanding the conversion. Mm-hmm. It's learning. That's it. Yeah. That's all it is. The last one is going to be a short one, but it's why people struggle to make changes. And I think like just novice coaches, we were younger, just in the field. And I think it's really tempting to think that when a person struggles to make change or stick to something, that it's because they don't want it bad enough. They're just lazy. And it's not that. And there's a lot of really good reasons why people resist change. And the more reading and learning and understanding we do around that, it makes working with people way more effective. Because like before, you have such a limited toolbox if your belief is that people who struggle to change just don't want to change. Because your method as a coach then becomes motivation and like just trying to hold people to things. instead Never of under- works. Yeah. Instead of trying to understand, you know, what's going on, what's the value with current behaviors and respecting that like someone may have very good reasons for resisting change that maybe they don't even understand. And so your job as a coach is to have conversations that help the person understand that these things that are holding you up, they're valid. You have valid reasons and there's value. You just have to understand what that is. Or maybe they are making changes Mm -hmm. and they're small. And so your expectation of like what kind of change they should be making isn't right. I asked a client the other day about alcohol and I was like, instead of being like, okay, well, do you want to like reduce that down to maybe two drinks per week? I said, well, how do you feel about your current intake? And she was like, I'm really stoked about it. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, maybe it's four or five drinks a week, but like I used to do 15. So like, I'm really happy with this and I'm happy with this balance. And like, yeah, could I be drinking less? Yeah, maybe I will eventually, maybe when summer's over. But it's like, as a coach, I can be like, oh, well, that's not good for you. You can have a conversation while it's like, okay, I mean, like you do know this, this impacts like the progression towards your goals, but like most people know that. Yeah. So it's, it's assuming that somebody doesn't want to make a change when they're already making a change that feels right for them. Yeah. A lot of it is just like language and curiosity and asking, learning about their life, understanding the crosswinds that impact the path to, to their goals, what might be diverting their attention. Yeah. And that's why I think we preach so much about the level of communication that we have with our clients because understanding what's going on in their life, whether it has to do with their kids, their job, their love life, like that has an impact. I like knowing what's going on in someone's life. If they're moving and their life is up in the air and they're switching jobs, I don't want to be asking like, hey, you know, like let's get back to tracking on Monday. Yeah. Because it's like maybe sometimes I'm like, hey, let's take a week off. Mm -hmm. Because a lot going on right now. Yeah. That's helpful. Like, hey, let's take a week off tracking and just like maybe put a little emphasis on breakfast because that's the one meal that you can get in right before your day starts. Yeah. And I think when I was younger, 
I thought of a lot of people as like problems to be solved. Like I've tracked macros. Oh, I can exercise every day. Like, why can't they? It's so easy. Well, I've learned a lot over the years. Like not everyone lives my life and not everyone has been exercising their entire life. Not everyone has, you know, had the experience with nutrition and and tracking that I have. So. Yeah. And for that reason, success is going to look very different. Yeah. All right. Well, great podcast, Alex. You too. Thanks for coming on the show again. We hope that you guys like this one. There was one last thing that I've changed my mind on. Okay. Dogs. Dogs. You're okay with dogs now. Yeah. Well, that's good to know because you own one. I know. Yeah. She's a good one though. I never hated dogs, but I never like wanted one. I had them growing up, but like as adults, I'm like, eh, they seem like kind of pains in the butt, like walking and stuff. But yeah. I've changed my mind on that. Yeah. They're Groo. great. They Groo enhance my life. One. Yeah. And once you have a dog, you just start like noticing them when you're out and about. Yeah. You appreciate them more. You're like, you're all perfect. Great. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone who you think might also enjoy it. For those those people still drinking BCAAs. We're so sorry. This doesn't come with any amount of judgment because we were there too. Yeah. Yeah. Just do your best. Make good decisions and have fun. That's our advice. Like, subscribe, share. We appreciate the support as always. And we'll catch you on the next episode.